Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19 says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Father, today, bring us to the moment with you. Clear our hearts and minds. Let us hear with the ears of our hearts, see with the eyes of our heart what it is that you would teach us and show us. Father, I pray that we will today be impressed with the importance and the significance of living our lives in a way that shows forth your praise and your honor. Thank you, Father, that you desire to do a new thing, to do something new in our lives. And I pray we would be quick and we would live with anticipation for that moment and we would be quick to be obedient when that moment comes. In Christ's name, amen. Now a new year. As I said earlier, it's a time for new beginnings, for new things. Some of you may remember the story of a lady who she had tried all year long to lose weight. She tried every diet that was out there, everything imaginable, everything that was new, she tried it to no avail. Well, a friend of hers told her about a new doctor in town. This new doctor had a new uh, surefire diet plan or exercise plan where you would lose weight. She said, well, being a new year, I'm going to make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to lose weight. So I'm going to go see this new doctor and get on this new plan. So she went and saw this new doctor, young doctor, and he examined her. And after he examined her, she said, well, what do you think? He said, ma'am, I believe I can help you. He said, I have a new plan, and I've got some special new pills I want to give to you. She said, doc, I don't need any new pills. I've taken all kinds of pills. He said, no, no. You don't understand, you don't take these pills. I don't want you to swallow them. And he gave her a big bottle of about 500 pills. He said, you don't swallow them, just pour them out on the floor and squat down and pick each one of them up one at a time and put back in the bottle. He said, do that three times a day for the next year and I promise you, you'll lose weight. <laughs> now, new things. Now, I think a lot of times, I don't imagine that excited her, that new thing, but uh, we're excited about new things, Amen. Aren't you excited when you like you get a new car? You're excited until you put that first scratch on it. Or until your daughters or somebody else puts that first scratch on it. Then you're not that excited anymore. But I'm always excited at the turn of a new year and what the new year may bring. All kinds of new things. Well, if you notice in Isaiah 43, 19, it tells us that God promised his people that he would do a new thing. And the truth is, listen to me, if you're a child of God... <clears throat> we don't have to wait till the new year to experience God's new thing. I mean, we can experience, it's possible every day of the year for us to experience something new from God, something new that he has just for us. Now, I want to break down Isaiah, this last, this section here in Isaiah for you. You may not know this, but chapters 40 through 66, they're what's considered the messianic chapters. So they're all about Jesus because in chapters 40 through 48, it talks about Jesus, the purpose of peace. Then in chapters 49 through 57, it speaks of the Messiah, of Jesus, as the Prince of Peace. Then in chapters 58 through 66, it talks about his program of peace. And then in Isaiah chapter 42, we have the first of what many call the four servant songs that are in the book of Isaiah. They're described uh, they're servant songs because they describe the servanthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you starting to see a theme here in the book of Isaiah? It's all about Jesus. 
Now, if you'll notice, you get a chance to read this when you get home or this week. Chapter 42 is the first servant song. That speaks of Christ's character. And if you're looking for confirmation for that, that's in the Gospel of Mark where it confirms that. The second servant song is in chapter 49 of Isaiah. That speaks of the Messiah's calling, Christ's calling. That's confirmed in the Gospel of Luke. And then the third song is in chapter 50. That speaks of his consistency. That's confirmed with the Gospel of John. And then the final servant song, the fourth one, in chapters 52 and 53, they speak of Christ, his credentials. That's confirmed by the Gospel of Matthew. But here in Isaiah 43, it depicts him as the Redeemer, the ruler and the refuge of his people, the one who will come and do a new thing. Now, friend, I don't know about you, but I want God to do a new thing in my life, my family, and in our church. Do you? Well, for that to happen, for God to do a new thing, there are several things that we need to realize. And the first one we need to realize, just like the children of Israel, is there are memories we're to appreciate, but not to dwell on. I want you to look at verse 18. <clears throat> the prophet says, uh, and God giving him the words, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Now, part of what God will do uh, in, the, in the future, his new things, for us to understand that, it involves us having a, a brief consideration of the past things, of what God has done. Now, I realize this verse, verse 18, seems a, a little misleading. So let me read it to you out of the NIV. It says, forget the former things, do not dwell in the past. So what God is telling his people is, God is not commanding them to forget the past altogether. Instead, he's cautioning them, don't, don't become so concerned with the past and living in the past that it hurts the present and it hinders the future. Does that make sense? Don't dwell in the past. What God is saying is, I'm going to transcend what's behind you. Look again, verse 18. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. All the things God had done in the past, he said, I'm going to do something beyond that. I'm going to transcend what's happened in the past. Now think about it. That statement, former things, it may not initially impact us until we understand the past that he's talking about are the mighty works of God. How he liberated the children of Israel from Egypt. How he preserved his people in the wilderness. And how he caused his people to occupy Canaan. Go back to verse 3 of chapter 43. Notice what it says. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom. All the mighty things that God has done in the past. William Barclay, in his commentary on this passage, talking about the past, he says, forget the things that are behind. Forget injuries, slights, unkind words. Be too big to be hurt, too great to be unkind, too busy to quarrel, too wise to engage in unseemly gossip, too strong to permit little annoyances to turn, from, turn you from your life's big goal, too clean to stain your character with any kind of impurity. Now, folks, there are many things that we should forget about the past. We ought, this past year, we ought to forget past failings. We ought to forget past foolishness, past hurts and disappointments. But we must never forget that what God has done in the past will be transcended by his new thing that he'll do in the future. Think about this. It's illustrated in the life of the nation of Israel. 
They were liberated from Egypt, okay? But, folks, that was transcended by the new thing, God's perseverance or, or preservation, rather, in the wilderness. But that was transcended by God's new thing of their occupation in the land of Canaan. Now, for us, let me drive the point home for us today. The salvation of a sinner. What a wonderful, miraculous, marvelous thing that is. Amen? But folks, it's transcended by God's new thing of sanctification of the saint. And then one day, sanctification of the saints is going to be transcended by God's new thing of glorification in the Savior. Again, while we should never forget what God has done at the same time, we need to remember that what he did in the past will be transcended by his new thing in the future. God says, not only am I going to transcend the past, but he tells the children of Israel, and I believe tells us, I'm also going to transform what's before you. Look at verse 14. It says, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans, whose cry is in the ships. Now Isaiah is talking about the, the, the Babylonian captivity. Now, there are many scholars who believe that uh, it's a prophecy of the captivity, and there are many other scholars who believe it's a promise while they're in captivity. I hold to the second opinion, that it's a promise while they're in captivity. In other words, the Jews are presently in the midst of 70 years of captivity, and Isaiah delivers these words from God while they're in captivity. God says, and the reason I say that, notice the past tense. In verse 14, God says, I have brought down all their nobles. That's past tense. Now, let me say this while we're on this point. Nobody can deny or debate the fact that the Jewish people deserve captivity. I mean, they had been warned time after time after time to turn back to God and to repent. But the people rebelled, refused, and rejected that warning. So God arranged because they would not turn back to God. And I think America needs to keep this in her heart and mind. Because the people of God would not turn back to him. Israel wouldn't turn back. God allowed the mighty Babylonian empire from the north to sweep down and take captive the, uh, his people. To destroy and divide Jerusalem. As a result, the Jews would be carried away to Babylon. They would serve 70 years in captivity and exile. So that's what's taking place with the people while Isaiah is given this word from God. But in the midst of captivity, I want you to look at verse 15. God offers a word of comfort. You see, the same God who originated their captivity, he's going to orchestrate their deliverance. Look at verse 15. Let's start reading there. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea, and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall, now get this, they shall lie down together. They shall not rise they are extinct. They are quenched as tow, or they're quenched like the wick of a candle being put out. Now keep in mind, folks, this would be the second great deliverance of the people. Not only had they been delivered from the bondage of Egypt, but they would also be delivered from the captivity of Babylon. So once again, in other words, I want to remind you again, God would transcend what was behind them. He would transform what was before them. God was about to do a new thing with his people. You know, I remember reading the story of uh, Thomas Edison back in, in 1914 in West Orange, New Jersey. There was a fire in his facilities, his inventing places. 
his facilities, they burnt to the ground. He lost over a million dollars. That's a lot of, that's a lot of money now. That's a lot of money in 1914. He lost over a million dollars. But more than that, he lost many of his plans and drawings and, and things for his inventions. But walking through the charred embers of his hopes and dreams the next day, this 67-year-old inventor turned to his apprentice and said these words. There is value in disaster. He said, God has worked it out so that all of our mistakes are burned up. Now we can start anew. Friend, listen to me. You may find yourself presently in your life in the midst of a trial or a tragedy, some tribulation. But if you're a child of God, I want you to take comfort. I want you to remember this. You are where you are, not by accident, not by mistake. God has arranged it, approved it, and allowed it to happen. So trust in His sovereignty. Because, listen, trust in God, just like with the children of Israel, the same God who allowed the trial, He already arranged the triumph. So you may not see it, but God knows what He's doing. Trust me. And the same God that arranged for you to go into that trial, He already has got your victory laid out. God has a way of intervening in our plans, doesn't He? You know, one woman put it like this, Christian comedian, she said, God will mess up your makeup so he can make up your mess up. That's what he does. I mean, folks, how many, and you know this verse in Romans 8, verse 28. You've heard it probably a thousand times, maybe a million times. And we know that all things work together for good, for them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Not that some things might work together, not that a few things work together. All things will work together for good. Folks, I'm telling you, if we will trust God, He will transcend what is taking place behind us, transform what's before us, and He'll do it to the point to where His new thing will make your present situation an old thing. I want you to see, secondly, not only memories that we're to appreciate, not to dwell on, but to appreciate, but folks, their mercies to appropriate. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. The current condition of the children of Israel was a result of God's judgment upon his people because they had rebelled, because they were disobedient. They had no one to blame but themselves. They had disobeyed God, displeased God, and disgraced God. And as a result, hard times were being turned into harder times. I want you to notice something. Look at verses 22 and 24. These verses speak of the failure of fallen man. But thou hast not called upon me, and God's speaking here, Thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Verse 24. Thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices. But thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast, now listen to this, thou hast wearied me, with thine iniquities. Folks, these verses here, they remind us of man's constant failure to come to terms with God. It all began in the Garden of Eden. It continued with the nation of Israel. And it continues today. Man has, does, and always will fail to meet God's holy standard. Stories told the famous blacksmith during medieval times. He was, the he was the favorite of the king until he fell out of favor with the king and he got thrown in the dungeon. When the dungeon, he was manacled, shackled to the wall. As a blacksmith, he began to expect, inspect the chains. 
looking for a flaw, looking for a weakness that he could exploit so he could escape. After he looked at the chains for several hours, he realized there is no flaw in these chains. And then after he looked a little closer, he realized, wait a minute, these are my chains. I made these chains. And for years, that blacksmith had bragged that no man could ever break his chains. No man would ever escape his chains. Now he found himself bound by his own work. Now I want you to listen to me. Every man, woman, boy, and girl on this planet is bound by his or her own work called sin. We are bound by it. Now, I realize it's not a popular subject, and, we, and many people don't like hearing it, but you've heard it. You'll continue to hear it as long as I'm your pastor, folks. We are all sinners, and we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinful by nature. We are born with a fallen, sinful nature. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. And then he says in verse 23 of Romans 6, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Let me explain something to you. God expects nothing except utter failure from us because this is all man on his own is capable of producing failure. It's all he has ever produced or will ever produce. You say, I don't see any good news or mercy in that. No, I'm setting the stage for you. Here's the good news. Now, folks, the nature of man is to fall. Amen. We all fall. But here's the good news. Here's the mercy. The nature of God is to be faithful. Amen. <laughs> I want you to look at verse 25. Now, remember, here's the people. They disobeyed, dishonored God to the point. Now, notice again what he says in verse 24. Where he says, you wearied me with thine iniquities. That's what man has done. God said, you have made me sick and tired of your sin. But now notice what God reveals he's going to do. Verse 25. He said, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. That's good. Amen. He said, I'll blot it out, not for who you are, not for how good you think you are, but for my own sake. He said, I'll save you. I'll blot out your transgressions. And you know what? Think about this. Even in the negative, like the failures of fallen man, there is a positive. You say, what could be a positive there? The positive is the failures of fallen man serve to reveal the nature of a faithful God. Folks, and only God's qualified to be faithful. You say, why only God's qualified to be faithful? Because God is the only God there is. I want you to look at verse 10, the second part of verse 10. Verse 10 makes it very clear there is no other God says that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God form, neither shall there be after me. So let me explain if you're not catching the intent of that verse. It's saying that God, he alone is supreme sovereign. It's saying that he has no one to rival, to replace, or to remove him. He stands in the class all by his own. He is forever, friend, the great unlike. He is without challenger, without a contender. He cannot be impeached. He cannot be sanctioned. He cannot be voted out of office. And praise God, he does not have any term limits. Right? I'm telling you, he is in charge of everything there is, everything that was, or everything that will be. He is God and God alone. Now, folks... Not only is there no other God, but because there's no other God, there's no other Redeemer. I want you to look at verse 11. 
He says, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. There is nobody else. You know, I'm reminded of a story of a, of a young man that traveled from America to England to visit a, a well-known and, and a very highly regarded scholar, a great scholar at Cambridge University. And as he got there, on his arrival, he was ushered into this great doctor, this great uh, scholar's study. And the young man was in awe. This study from ceiling to floor was filled with books on every wall. And when this great scholar walked in, the young man stood to his feet and shook hands with him. He said, Doctor, he said, I have a question to ask you. I've traveled a long ways to talk to you about this. He said, I know that you are a man of great education, a man of great knowledge. He said, I see that you get all these books and you study, and I know that you have probably read all of them. He said, I also know that you have written many books. He said, Sir, I know that you've traveled over the world, and you have had intimate conversations with the world's wisest men, with the leaders of thought, and with the creators of opinions. So he said, tell me, sir, if you will, please, after all the years you have spent in study out of all the things you have learned, what is the one thing best worth knowing? And that old scholar, as tears began to form in his eyes, he put his hand gently on that young man's shoulder, and he said, son of all the things, that I have learned in all the years, there are only two lessons best worth knowing. He said, lesson number one is, I know that I am a great sinner. He said, but lesson number two is greater, for I know that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Now, friend, I've told you this before. I think I told you, may have told you last week, week before last. Had our greatest need in this world been information, God would have sent a teacher, an educator. Had our greatest need been technology, he would have sent a scientist. Had our greatest need uh, have been money, he would have sent an economist. Had our greatest need have been pleasure, he would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need was salvation, so he sent a Savior. Now look again at verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Man, I don't know about you, but I love that verse. Let me ask you something, friend. Have you failed, God? Are you in need of forgiveness? Do you need a new beginning? Well, I'm going to tell you, he's the only one qualified because he is the only God there is and the only Redeemer. He's the only one that can give you the mercies you need for all your miseries and the grace for all your sin. And what you need to do is give up on yourself and surrender your life to Jesus Christ and he will blot out thy transgressions and do something new in your life. Not only... Are the memories to appreciate, but not dwell on. I want to make sure and get that in there. Not only are there mercies to appropriate, but friend, there are miracles we can anticipate. I want you to look at verse 18 again. Notice that phrase, the former things. Do you understand thousands of years of history are included in that phrase? Things that God had done. What that means is from, from, from uh, Adam to Abraham to Joseph to Moses to Joshua, from Mount Moriah, Mount Sinai to Mount, uh, Mount Nebo, from Egypt to the wilderness to Kadesh Barnea to Canaan, the former things, all the things, the glorious things God had done, they were all done as demonstrations of God's purpose, power, and promises. But, look at verse 19 now. It seems like God is saying, I'm shutting the door on what happened in the past. He said, I'm letting you know that there's greater things ahead in the future. Look at verse 19. He says again, Behold, I will do a new thing. 
He said, yeah, it was all great, what took place in the past, but I got something better in mind, a new thing. Dr. Stephen Olford, great, great Bible teacher and preacher, he writes about this and says, there is divine seed of hope in these words. For God is not only telling us that he's going to do a new thing, but he states his intention in terms of a promise. In other words, God's not just saying it. God is promising. He said, I'm going to do a new thing. And God promises, first of all, originality. A new thing. Notice that word new. <clears throat> In verse 19, that's the Hebrew word kadash. And it actually literally means, not new, but it means fresh or original. So all the former things God had done would be superseded by this new thing. This fresh thing, original thing God would do. Now God is promising something that has never been done before. Now let me explain to you. Ultimately, God's new thing would be the Lord Jesus Christ who would supersede every Old Testament symbol, standard, and sacrifice and would provide for us what Hebrews 10.20 calls a new and living way. Ultimately, Jesus was God's, God the Father's new thing. A.W. Pink reminds us, there was never a time when he was not, speaking of Christ, and there will never come a time when he shall cease to be. He has neither evolved, grown, nor improved. He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. Being perfect, he cannot change for the worse, altogether unaffected by anything outside of him. Improvement or deterioration is impossible for him. Now I want you to think about this. The God who has not changed will not change because he cannot change, change and never needs to change. He has promised to do a new thing. So let me ask you again, friend. Do you need God to do a new thing in your life? Not only does God promise originality, but also creativity. Look again, verse 19. Behold, I'll do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Now listen. I will even make a way in the wilderness. Now, I don't know how many of you remember this old song you sing years ago. It says, Jesus made a way when there was no way. He picked me up, turned my life around. Lord, you brought me out. I don't have one doubt. You are the way maker. He's the way maker. Amen. A friend, listen to me. It's been said that even when we're doing nothing, God, he's still up to something. And praise his name, he is still up to something. He promises to be our provider, our protector, and our preserver. I want you to do something. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 43. It says, When thou passest through the waters, I'll be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. That was a verse that I kept... Uh, actually, it was written down in the front of a little Gideon New Testament Bible, and I carried that in my bunker code fire station for almost 28 years. You know what that verse is saying? Waters, that spoke of the Red Sea. Rivers, that referred to the Jordan. And then fire, that reminds us of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. And listen, in all three cases, God made a way where there was no way. God made a way. Notice the word through. Verse 2, it passed through the waters, through the rivers, walk us through the fire. Now, just as God made a way for them, He promises to make a way for us. Now, friend, listen to me. It does not matter what you're going through. All that matters is God said you're going through. The waters can't overtake us, the rivers can't overflood us, and the flame can't overwhelm us. Somebody wrote these words. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? 
God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things that others cannot do. Friend, you may be facing odds right now in your life, and the world around you says they are insurmountable. You may be in the midst of a situation where there are a whole lot of roads to lead you into that situation, but you don't see a road to lead you out of that situation. Well, can I introduce to you the way maker? His name is Jesus Christ, and He specializes in making a way where there are no ways. You know how He does that? Because He Himself is the way. I want you to see the God of originality and creativity. He also promises productivity. I want you to look at verse 20, because He promises He'll satisfy us. <clears throat> look at verse 20. It says, The beasts of the field shall honor me. The dragons and the owls. And I'm going to stop right here for a minute because I know some people are going to ask this. That says dragons. Can you explain dragons in there? What about the dragons, preacher? Actually, a better rendering of that would be uh, uh, the beast of the field shall honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. You say, I don't agree with that. Well, the word can be translated either way. Dragons or owls or jackals or ostriches. You say, how in the world does that happen? Welcome to the Hebrew language. In English, it can be translated either way. What I want you to get is God is saying that all of the wilderness, all these creatures, he said, they are going to honor me. And then notice he says, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, this important point, to give drink to my people, my chosen. Folks, do you realize God's great delight is to satisfy his people? You say that true, preacher? Oh, it's absolutely true. God's great delight is to satisfy his people. And God's great desire is that he be all that we desire. And we find our complete and total satisfaction in him and him alone. That's what he desires from us, folks. You know what? When I think about God being our satisfaction, and I may have told you this story before, I think about a, a, a godly Methodist woman years ago by the name of Claire Williams. And I'll tell you, she was poor. She lived in a shack with curtain walls and a dirt floor. She was poor as poor can be. As my granny used to say, she, she, was, she was poor as Job's turkey. I don't know what that means, but I guess it means poor. I mean, she didn't have anything, but she was a talented, a gifted writer. And her friend come to her one day, said, Claire, I want you to write me a poem, a special poem. This is what she wrote. Listen to the words of this. All my life I had a longing for a drink from some clear spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst that I felt within. Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings through his blood. I now am saved. Listen to me, friend. God promises to satisfy us, to be our satisfaction. And when we realize that God himself is our satisfaction, then we will constantly and continually glorify God. Look at verse 21. God said, This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Now, do you realize everything God does, He does on purpose and for a purpose? God's not like us. Or not like, I mean no disrespect, daughters. They, they do something because of the seed of the britches. Your shirt tail blows that way. Okay. God's not that way, friend. Anything God does, it's on purpose and for a purpose. Now, you can laugh because I use my daughter as an example, but you know what? All of us were the same way at that age, were we not? Did we think any farther than right here in planning anything? Now, I'm not saying my daughters don't, and I'm going to get in trouble saying this, so I'm going to stop. I'm going to say this. 
I'm just pointing out that when you're young, a lot of times you make some rash decisions. Now, I'm not saying my kids have done that. Well, they have, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> I'm not saying they have right now, right? That's not what I'm saying. But when we're young, we do that. God never does make a rash decision. God never does, never does put a plan into motion that does not have a purpose. There's a reason why. God, God's immediate purpose, folks, is to satisfy us, to be our satisfaction. Now listen to me. God's ultimate purpose is that by satisfying us, we will glorify Him. I want you to look at the first sentence of verse 10 and the last sentence of verse 12. Notice what it says. Ye are my witnesses. Understand, friend, the duty of every creature is to glorify God. The duty of every Christian is to glorify God. The duty of every church is to glorify God. Those are the terms by which God promises that he will do a new thing. Glorify God. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5 and verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The purpose, friend, for your life, for my life, the purpose for this church or any church is to show forth God's praise to a lost and dying world. That's the purpose. God's new thing, it's only laid up in store for those who are willing to let God be God. I believe, folks, listen, I believe with all my heart, God is telling us today, I want to do a new thing with those who allow me to do my thing. It'll be a new thing. Now, I'm going to wrap it up here, folks. As the new year turned this past week, as a pastor, of course, I was thinking about the new year and thinking about the church and the new year, and I thought about the past since I've been here as your pastor. And the past, actually this is my sixth new year here with you, the past five-something years, folks, God has, God has brought about and brought us through some changes. Some changes have taken place. And through those changes, at times, there have been some winds and rain, maybe a storm here and there, or a potential storm here and there. But through it all, God brought us through it. And God blessed us in the process. Now I realize said this before, you know, believe it or not, I know more than you think I do. I know I don't appear that I do. But, uh, and I'm actually a little smarter than the normal bear. I realize, folks, over with some of the changes that have taken place the last few years, that there's been some commotion around. You know, people have said things. They have said things about, and I'm sure they'll continue to say things about me or about you or about the church or whatever. And I was thinking about that New Year's Eve. God said, so what? So what? He said, think about it, son. The more people talk, if you're doing what you're supposed to do, the more people talk, the more I'm going to bless. Now, let me make this real clear to you. The fact is, this church is not an accident. Folks, me being your pastor, us being together as a church family is no accident. It's by divine appointment. And we have a divine assignment. God is the one who arranged this. He's the one who allowed it. He's the one who appointed this. Now I say all this to point out this great truth. This church, 
Folks, this church is His church entirely, completely, exclusively, and unreservedly. It's His, not mine and not yours. And let me say this. I want to remind you as your pastor, and I want you to listen to me. And as long as God allows me to be your pastor, I want you to understand every time we assemble, our theme will be to show forth His praise. Every song that is sung, our refrain will be to show forth His praise. Folks, every message that is preached from this pulpit, our determination will be to show forth His praise. Every time we fellowship and every hand we shake, our motto will be to show forth His praise. Every dollar we give, our attitude will be to show forth His praise. Every missionary we support, every ministry we perform, our desire will be to show forth His praise. Every prayer, friend, we pray in this church, our hope will be to show forth His praise. Every soul we win to Jesus Christ, our aim will be to show forth His praise. Every decision that we make, our motive for that decision will be to show forth His praise. Everything we do in this church, our aspiration will be to show forth His praise. And if it does not show forth His praise, we will not do it or be part of it. That's pretty clear, amen? Think of where God has brought us from in five years' time. You say, well, things were better back then. Well, that's your opinion. Think where God has brought us from and think how God is bringing us on. Folks, do you not think God has blessed us over this past year? Let me tell you something. Some of the things that we've had to deal with, just the material things in this church, would have split many churches right down the center. Hasn't. Not only was it accomplished, but God blessed in the process. Now, we appreciate everything God has done. But I want to tell you, we need to anticipate everything God will do in His new thing. What's coming in the future. Folks, if we will glorify Him and trust Him, I'm telling you, He will transcend what is behind us and transform what is before us. So we will show forth His praise even more. Now let me say this in closing. Do you need to experience, friend, a new thing today? Well, let me say this. If you're not saved, God has something new just for you today. If you're not saved, all you need to do is surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Because if you'll ask Him, He will see to it that old things are passed away in your life and all things become new. Now, if you're here and you are saved, God has something new for you too. He wants to transform your life, Christian, into everything He wants it to be and everything that it should be for Him. Church, I'm done right here. Listen to me. God is still God. And I'm telling you, as the new year begins, God wants to do a new thing. He wants to do a new thing. If we'll get out of the way and allow him to do a new thing. You say, how do we stop God? God's, not gonna, God's always a gentleman. He's not going to invade your heart and opinion without being invited. You say, so what new thing are you talking about, preacher? I'm not God. You know, I know a lot of people get the idea I'm the Holy Spirit. No, I'm not. 
Folks, the same God who talks to me talks to you. I don't know what God has in store, but I do know this. When we'll pray and seek His face, be obedient to Him and glorify Him. Show forth His praise. He'll do something that when it's done, people will say, man, that had to be God that done that. That's a new thing I'm praying for, and I hope you will too. Do you bow your heads, please? There's some of you here today, you need a new thing. You, you need a new life in Jesus Christ. In just a moment, you're going to have that opportunity. There's some of you here who are Christians, but you need to rededicate your life. You need to step closer and begin to live the life that God, God has saved you to live, that he's called you to live. The altars will be open. Whatever decision you need to make, this is your opportunity to make it. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict and would move freely and that our hearts would be moldable and we would respond in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand, please? Sing one more verse. Hope to see you back this evening, uh, 6 o'clock. I'll be preaching on, I don't know, come back and we'll find out together. Uh, just, it left. I uh, don't remember. But come back, man, we'll both be surprised, okay?
Brother Glendon Chester, would you dismiss us, sir?